my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get a little bit arty. We're going to be talking about Andy Warhol and Paul Morrissey. Do you know who Andy Warhol is, listener? Of uh, course you do. Uh, he did the soup can. <laughs> That's right. And the Marilyn Monroe. You know, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I think that it's not a very controversial statement to say that Andy Warhol is probably the most recognizable fine art artist of the 20th century. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I could ask my dad, hey, do you know who Andy Warhol is? He'd go, yep. Yeah. And he could point out stuff that he's done. And I th- I don't think any other artist of the 20th century, even even Duchamp, has had a bigger impact on just the way we look at the world. Exactly. Like the fact that you can make a painting about a soup can, the fact that his superstars can be stars. Mm-hmm. These are just such influential ideas. We're not going to talk about their fine art. We're going to talk about their movies. Mm-hmm. Specifically the films that were directed by Paul Morrissey, whose films were often confused as being directed by Andy Warhol because it was Andy Warhol's flesh, Andy Warhol's heat, Andy Warhol's flesh for Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. While Warhol was more of a producer and an overseer. Although they did collaborate on some movies uh, early in Morrissey's time at the factory. Uh, Morrissey entered the picture of Andy Warhol's factory in 1965, back when the factory scene was kind of at its zenith. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warhol, by that point, had done his much-publicized retirement from painting, uh, and he was moving on towards filmmaking. Warhol had discovered filmmaking by kind of hanging around with Jonas Mikas and the underground, seeing... Those lovable bunch of guys in New York. Uh, yeah, I was I was reading something this week that pointed out that the art establishment, uh, like the fine art establishment in the 50s and the early 60s, with the abstract expression was very homophobic. Oh, yeah. So you can imagine why Warhol would feel more at home with the underground filmmakers. And the thing about Warhol's early films are that they're the definition of trying art movies. It would be stuff like Blowjob, where you would watch a man get a blowjob with a static camera, or the screen test that he made famous, which is he would put the camera on someone for three minutes and ask them to do nothing and just Mm -hmm. film them. Mm -hmm. Or Sleep, where you're watching someone sleep. Or The Kiss, where you're watching someone kiss. Or Empire, watching the Empire State Building and nothing is happening. There are a couple of phases in Warhol's filmmaking. There's the early silent ones where they are kind of patience testers. Mm -hmm. They are the the it's about the idea of making a film for eight hours of the empire state building and then he moved on to uh doing films like vinyl or kitchen vinyl being a unofficial adaptation of a clockwork orange where basically he would plant the camera down and he would put a couple of his people in front of it and they would do whatever they were going to do in front of it and it's all about him kind of giving up any authorial control Mm -hmm. and then when morrissey gets in the picture Morrissey came to the factory in 1965, and as I understand it, he was kind of an anomaly in the factory crowd. He was a very conservative figure. He uh, said that he liked to run the factory like a business, Mm -hmm. in the sense that there would be, like, no drugs when Mm -hmm. he was there, and he wanted to make sure that everything ran very smoothly. That kind of wild and crazy Mm -hmm. idea that people have of Andy Warhol's factory is something that Morrissey kind of wanted to get out of the picture. And also, he's not an intellectual, uh, as I understand it. He was very commercially oriented. He kind of looked down his nose at the art world. He consciously tried to reposition the uh, Andy Warhol films as less for the art house crowd and more for the kind of sexploitation market. And they actually succeeded with their first collaboration, which was Chelsea Girls, mm-hmm. which was a three and a half hour epic. That's whole gimmick was supposedly Andy Warhol took a napkin and doodled one side black and went, I want to make a movie that one side is white and one side is black. <laughs> and the way they succeeded doing that is they made a three and a half hour film 
that would actually play on two projectors. So there'd be two images at all times. Uh, and one I of think, them in color, one of them in black and, and white. And the kind of conceit is it's all of Warhol's superstars of the time, like Ondine or Mary Warnov, uh, mm-hmm. other people like that. And the conceit is they're all like different rooms of the Chelsea Hotel. Yeah. And it's kind of like almost immersive VR experience, if you will, where there's not really much of a narrative, but you're watching all these scenes play out. I have the distinction of having seen Chelsea Girls. On 60 millimeter? Twice. Twice? I I saw it when I was in university, when Mm, I was going through- This is very important and I must watch all of it. Yeah, I was was going through kind of a Warhol phase (laughs) in in university and I was, you know, I would say that I'm guarantee. I guarantee that I've seen more Warhol movies than ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people, which means I've probably seen about ten. Listen, <laughs> listen. I need to feel intellectual. And then the second time I saw it was at the anthology film archives because when I was at, what, <laughs> did they trick you? You like got into the room. You're like, no. I'll, I'll tell you why I saw it there is because I was doing for journalism school this radio piece about the Chelsea Hotel because okay. the tenants of the Chelsea Hotel were in some dispute with the owner because the owner wanted to turn it into a tourist attraction. Mm. And so the tenants did this fundraiser at the anthology to raise money for their fund. And I th- and they were showing Chelsea Girls. And I thought, well, it would be prudent for me if I wanted to talk to these people to go to the event and watch all of it. So I've seen Chelsea Girls twice, including once on 16mm. And I will say that, it, you know, conceptually, it's interesting. That's the thing about Andy Warhol but but, but but here's the thing. The way he recorded the sound, you can't hear it's anything shitty, they're yeah. saying. So it's it's hard. And Mary Warnov has talked about that the shittiness of his film is something that Warhol himself strived for. Like, he wanted bad sound. Yeah. He wanted this. He took it very seriously because that was the aesthetic that he was going for. And for the one, for his movies that are an hour long, I can get into the spirit. Mm. So I remember a few years ago at TIFF, they played Poor Little Rich Girl with Edie Sedgwick. Yeah, the which, film that made her a star. And it's on two 16 millimeter reels. And the first reel is out of focus and it's black and white. And you watch, and it's just her kind of puttering around her apartment in her underwear out of focus so it's kind of this like silvery ghost-like image and i'm watching it thinking oh this is kind of interesting this uh, is kind of a beautiful image really and then the second reel's in focus and i thought oh that was a mistake (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing right yeah and warhol if you read interviews with him or even um essays about him like this persona that he crafted was exactly that something that he created which is like the artifice and the nothing that can be read meaning into if you show something static with nothing happening i remember one art critic talking about like uh the kiss where he's like i'm watching these people kiss and it's going on forever and nothing is happening nothing is moving and then suddenly they blink and it's ecstatic it's like everything to me well i mean part of the genius of warhol and i think it was a genius was that his work can be whatever you want it to be exactly it can be good that he painted a soup can you can say this this is this is wonderful that a soup can can be art or you can say this is a sly comment on on consumerism yeah yeah or last time i was in new york i saw this movie he made called paul swan it's not one of his best known movies but it's basically a film portrait where he plunked the camera down and he had this old dancer this guy in his 70s who's obviously gay Mm -hmm. who kind of putters around and dresses and undresses and pathetically tries to do some of his dances again from his glory days and because he just lays the camera down you're not sure what warhol warhol is basically abdicating any responsibility for what he's showing he's showing here here's this weird guy and and i'm interested in this i'm interested in him but i'm not going to tell you what i think about him 
I'm putting all the responsibility on you to say, what are you supposed to interpret from this? Yeah, that's almost all of his pieces, which, like you said, sometimes it's theoretically interesting (laughs) to talk about or to read about, but then to sit there for three and a half hours being like, what the hell? Yeah. So, but, but those kind of film portraits are easier to watch than, you know. Yeah, three minutes. Than than Blowjob, which, or, well, or Empire or Sleep, which I think are just purely on the conceptual level. They're Mm -hmm. not meant to be watched. So Paul Morrissey is in the factory and as he had helped Warhol make Chelsea Girls, something happened that changed the fate of Warhol and everything, which was Warhol was shot and this put him in the hospital. He almost died. I read that they actually had to open him up and massage his heart and they actually declared him dead. Hmm. But then when somebody told the doctors he was someone really rich and famous, they went, oh, we got to keep trying, hmm. which I don't know how true that is, but it's it's a good story. Though. Yeah, it is. And I think we've both seen the Richard Avedon photo mm-hmm. of his of his stomach after which is a mirror in flesh for frankenstein yeah basically so the agenda of warhol and morrissey in terms of filmmaking were very much at odds and i think even before he was shot there was a breaking point during the making of my hustler when warhol shot the first reel of my hustler on a beach where it was just a static shot of like a muscle muscular guy on a beach but then morrissey went and reshot it uh, where the camera starts at the beach house and then it does a pan across the beach and then it lands on the muscle guy And that's a directorial intervention. And Warhol did not like that at all. But who was in charge of distributing these movies? Who was in charge of promoting? Morrissey. Morrissey, because Warhol had no patience for that. So which reel got sent to the theaters? Yep, the one with the pan in it. Yeah. And what ended up happening after Warhol was in the hospital and couldn't get involved? Morrissey went and made his own movie. Mm -hmm. The first one in 1968, Flesh. The first of a informal trilogy, Flash in 1968, Trash in 1970, and Heat in 1972, all films with the actor, well, I don't know if he's an actor, Joe D'Alessandro. Oh, I really like Joe D'Alessandro. I like him too, but- He's not much of an actor, but he has I will such an individual presence, his like, New York accent. Yeah. After seeing five of these movies in a week, I'll say that I've seen everything in his bag of tricks. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that if you look at his IMDb, he's been in like 98 films. Yeah, well- he, Everybody deserves to be famous, right? He, yeah, he's kind of a, he's a beautiful man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's kind of a gay icon, I guess, because he's- Especially the, if you like looking at his dick. His dick and his butt. Yeah. The signature image of these movies is his ass while he's getting a blowjob. Uh, his pimply white ass. Yeah. His archetype, I guess, is kind of of the blue collar, you know, hyper masculine straight guy who can be persuaded to be gay. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Trash, the second film, he is married to a transvestite. Mm. And in the first one, he's... Uh, the first one, Flesh, he's a street hustler uh, to pay the rent and basically a bisexual street hustler, even though I think he would identify himself as straight. Now, Will took the bullet and watched all three films. Mm-hmm. I went, two is enough. I watched Flesh and Trash, which are fairly interchangeable, other than the fact that Flesh, I think, is feels more experimental because you can feel Morrissey kind of... Doesn't want to stray too far yeah. from what Warhol did before. Annoyingly, every cut is uh, accompanied with a flash of white as Be- if the film is running out. Because it was in-camera edits. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And that that was a Warholian gimmick, which later, which he never used again after yeah. that. I didn't like these movies. No, me neither. Theoretically can understand why someone would like them. But I would actually just, I would rather watch Warhol's movies than Morrissey's. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's a bit of a controversial statement, but I think Morrissey hates these people more than Warhol does. Morrissey has talked in interviews a lot that he's a very conservative man, that he doesn't like seeing sex on screen. Mm -hmm. And when he portrays sex on screen, he wants to treat it as a joke. And 
in that same interview, he talks about John Waters and how he really loves John Waters movies because they do kind of share the same DNA. But just thinking me personally about it, the thing about John Waters is he loves his characters on screen. He mm. loves everybody. Mink Stoll, Divine, anybody that shows up, like, he just likes mm-hmm. hanging out with these people. Morrissey hates the people that are on the screen. Yeah. He just doesn't like them. He holds contempt for them. Mm-hmm. And that's not fun to watch. Yeah. And and because he hates them, I have a hard time. Because with John Waters, uh, John Waters will show you what's beautiful about the people in his mm-hmm. films. John Waters creates an entire alternate reality where everything ugly is beautiful and everything that you know society would consider beautiful is ugly uh, whereas there's there's not that kind of richness of imagination in the morrissey films no it's mostly just showing you stuff that you haven't seen before in cinema and that's why you want to pay money to see it on the screen that must have been it it's just like you didn't see like these sorts of you know quote-unquote dregs of society in movies until this time the movies are compelling to some extent because there's this kind of like time capsule quality to them like flesh is set in new york of the time so you get a bit of a sense of the sort of warhol scene in Mm -hmm. new york but maybe it's just we're watching them at a distance from when they were released as well because someone like uh danny perry who wrote the famous book cult movies actually has an article on trash and he talks about that while some critics consider trash a cold ugly film I think it's oddly moving because here are rare screen characters whose predicaments are worth caring about. And then he quotes George Medley from the London Observer who goes, It may be possible to find trash heartless, but to do so, I think shows inattention. Every now and then the camera settles on Joe's beautiful dead face, and for a moment there flickers behind the eyes a sense of pain-numbed outrage at what is happening to him. Once a small tear runs down his cheek, these transvestites, nymphos, junkies are in hell. They turn on to give them the illusion of living the shadow of happiness for all its superficial air of improvisation this is a carefully considered totally responsible film something that should be pointed out about this is that morrissey has gone on record a lot that nothing is improvised really in trash and that these are actors acting they are not shooting heroin they are not doing drugs he would not put up with sex so the attraction that sounds that a lot of critics had was more of i'm really seeing these people on screen yeah when the fact is it's not morrissey is making fun of them you can sense a bit of like kind of this middle class slumming Mm -hmm. with it like oh isn't it interesting that this is how these people live yeah i was watching it just kind of feeling bad for these i mean there's still good performances like in trash holly woodlawn gives a really fun performance as joe's wife in it yeah and heat the last of the trilogy is i mean i think flash is probably my favorite of these three films if i had to choose one yeah because it is in that world of andy warhol still before kind of stepping away from it but but heat which is the last one is kind of interesting because it's set in la and it's a riff on it's a deliberate riff on sunset boulevard where Joe D'Alessandro plays kind of an aging child actor who hooks up with his aging landlady, played by Sylvia Miles, basically just so that he can get a discount on his rent. And then a bit of a love triangle emerges with her and the daughter. It's interesting to see this kind of trashy, melodramatic story filtered through the Warhol Morrissey lens. But as I was watching it, I was thinking John Waters could really do something with this. Yeah. Like this is the non-fun version yeah, of John Waters. Yeah. Like I can I can see John Waters in the audience watching this, liking these characters, taking the inspiration and making his own movies where everything is like I can imagine hanging out with these characters and and I hate it. Yeah. But John Waters characters take the DNA of these characters and push it to an absurd hyperbolic level. Mm-hmm. So after these films, uh, Morrissey made a bunch of 
other Warholian style films. Women in Revolt is yep. one of them, you know. I haven't seen them. Yeah. But what we did watch were probably Morrissey's most famous film, which are Flesh for Frankenstein, Blood for Dracula. We mentioned both of them together because they were both shot in Italy at the same time with Udo Kier as both Dr. Frankenstein and as Dracula. And they're kind of famous in cult circles. I I think they're okay. They're fine. Yeah. I saw Once f- again, like yeah. Morrissey in interviews has such contempt for horror films. Th- these are the two that I don't see a lot of Warhol in them. The only way I see Warhol in them is if I'm being extremely generous and I want to say, well, early in his career when Warhol was painting paintings of like Dick Tracy and Popeye mm. and stuff like that. Oh, like riffs on comics and stuff yeah. like that. So, genre. so this is maybe in that lineage, but I think that's a that's stretch. A stretch. Yeah. I think it's mostly uh, they gave him the money to go do this. So they did. Uh, there's a rumor floating around that Antonio Margaretti, the man who gave us such classics as Castle of Blood and cannibal apocalypse ghost directed these films which morrissey vehemently denies i think udo denied that too Mm -hmm. but if someone told me that i would go oh yeah i can see that because they do have that italian exploitation feel i once saw flash for frankenstein in 3d at the fox cinema in their 3d film uh, festival it was on a double bill with uh, friday the 13th part three in 3d good double bill uh oh what a night and I really enjoyed Flesh for Frankenstein when I saw it then, and I only moderately enjoyed it now. And I think you just got to see it with an audience because an audience will bring out the camp quality of these movies, you know? I mean, the advantage of Flesh for Frankenstein, great Udo Kier performance. Yes, very committed. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and Flesh for Frankenstein has an abundance of goofy gore. Oh, yeah, terrific. Like, and it, when you see it in 3D during the scene when Dr. Frankenstein is impaled and his, like, liver or something yeah. is on the gallbladder. Yeah, gallbladder. Yeah, and it's it's like pointing out into the audience great 3d moment and other than that there's not really that much to go on other than the novelty of having this hammer product uh set in the 70s that has all this gore sex and violence and has a general kind of arch camp tone like there's the point when udo gets on top of the body of one of his creatures he just starts fucking it yeah you gotta fuck life in the gallbladder which is where we're all shot absolute serious you know no, no winking at the camera and Blood for Dracula, which I liked a little bit less than Flesh for Frankenstein. I actually like Blood for Dracula more. Really? Why? Uh, I found it a little bit more moving. I like Udo Kier's performance more. I mentioned that the film starts on a tinkly uh, piano number where Udo Kier, who's like a disheveled, old-looking Dracula, is making himself up in the Mm. mirror, like putting lipstick and dye in his hair. I just found that very emotional in the way that it played out. I liked Udo's performance a lot. It's very, uh, well, I... Tragic? Yeah, tragic and like kind of camp. Yeah. Like a little bit fey and, mm-hmm. and gay. And the uh, whole joke of the movie is a little bit weird because it's the idea of Dracula is sucking the blood out of the unpure, which is making him sick, which is a weird analogy to what was going on at Warhol's factory at the time, mm. which was he was pushing out all the kind of others. The freaks. He, yeah, he didn't want them anymore. Yeah, because once you get shot, yeah. Then you stop hanging around with the sorts of people who would shoot you. <laughs> exactly. And the thing that Blood for Dracula doesn't have is like the crazy gore and stuff like that, even though it does end with uh, Dracula as a torso. Yeah. The, the plot of the movie is that Count Dracula comes to this family home to find a bride, and he's been assured that the three young daughters are all virgins. And uh, one by one, he finds out, well, they're not actually virgins yep. because the the houseboy, Joe D'Alessandra, <laughs> has been... Uh, Trying not to uh, fake an accent of any kind, just speaking in his normal voice. Yeah, he's been... Uh, uh, going to work. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And another thing that's kind of funny about this movie is that aside from Joe D'Alessandra, uh, all the cast are speaking like maybe their second or third languages, which gives it this. And they're, and they're speaking in this kind of like 
monotone, but again, not winking at the camera. Yeah, so it has it, a bit of an alien quality to yeah, it. Yeah, it has that auto-translated feel. Yeah, yeah, I like that. But other than that, yeah, they're okay. Yeah. Like, I, would, I wouldn't give them any, like, hard recommendations or anything unless you just want to see Udo Kier let loose, which he does in both of these films. I think they should be seen for Udo Kier, if yes. nothing else. These are, when I think of Udo Kier in my head. and You I, sick of these two yeah, movies? Yeah. yeah. Paul Morrissey, after that, would go on to direct a bunch of forgettable films. He did an adaptation of The Hounds of Baskerville. Starring Dudley Moore and Peter Cook. Have you seen it? No, but I just, I, I only learned about it this week. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it either. But he and Warhol fell out in the mid-70s, I think partly over the fact that these Dracula and Frankenstein movies were not successful. And also, I understand there was a Broadway show that Morrissey made that Warhol kind of signed his name to that closed in mm. a weekend. And Morrissey always had a kind of anger toward the fact that all the films had Andy Warhols mm -hmm. and people assume that those were products of Warhol and Warhols alone. Well, you know, after Pink Flamingos, Andy Warhol offered John Waters the money to make his next movie. Really? And John Waters turned it down because if he'd done it, it would have been Andy Warhol's female trouble. Oh, you know? yeah, that yeah. makes absolute sense. Yeah. But uh, Warhol stopped making movies uh, in 1976. Bad, Andy Warhol's Bad was the last w film to emerge from the factory. And that was a famous film in that it cost a lot of money to make yeah. and barely got a release as well. Yeah. And I think after that, just like maybe Hollywood had caught up to the sorts of stuff. It was certainly not the stylistic stuff, but the sorts of stories and the sorts of people that were in his movies were no longer novel anymore. <laughs> D during that decade, he made a lot of money doing commissioned portraits for people. But then there was stuff like Interview Magazine and he did TV work. Yeah. Obviously just lost interest in film. Yeah, it just became about making money and just being able to, you know, keep yeah. that cash flowing. Yeah, but I think there's he did some very interesting fine art in the last decade of his life too. Oh, is that a contrarian opinion or? Uh, I think it's an opinion that's gaining ground. <laughs> okay, started by Will Sloan. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Will, it's letter time. Our first letter goes... And we got a lot of them, so buckle up, people. All right. Specifically, Will. Hello. Let me begin by saying that I love the show and really enjoy your witty banter and sexual chemistry. Wow. I would like to ask if you guys frequently get movies at the library. As a young and poor aspiring filmmaker, I have found many great out-of-print movies like The Last Man on Earth, Possession, and Paper Moon. I would also like to know if you have any odd experiences getting filmed from the library, like some sort of judgment uh, for getting so many films. I am bisexual and very interested in LGBT films and feel that occasionally my small town librarians give me dirty looks, quietly judging me. Or maybe it's just my version of the Annie Hall, did he say Jew scene? <laughs> Thanks for making such a great show. Thankfully, someone finally pointed out that we do have that steamy nature <laughs> to our conversations. We record all of our conversations nude. Yeah, that's right. I do take a lot of movies out from the library. I'm sure Will does because he does not set foot in the peasant's abode like that anymore. Oh, well, I, you know, growing up, I went to the library all the time to write mm -hmm. movies because they, they were free movies. And also yeah. because libraries have a better selection of classic movies normally than, than Netflix or anywhere else or any video store. Oh, yeah, or my local video store. Some of the movies I saw for the first time at a from a library were God, Citizen Kane, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Touch of Evil, mm -hmm. His Girl Friday. Also, my local library when I was a kid uh, or, or a teenager had a pretty robust selection of 
uh, Chinese movies too. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. the Toronto library system has a amazing selection of movies mm-hmm. that like every time I go, I'm always shocked by what movies they have. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, twins of evil, the new uh, release. Yeah. I'll take that. Mm-hmm. Or queen of earth, a, f- a film that costs $39 on DVD. If I wanted to buy it. Well, yes, I will take it out of the library. I still take a lot of movies out on DVD from the library. Cause I take a lot of books and I always get distracted by like movies they have on their shelves. And my logic is always, I'll take it from the library, which means I will then have to watch it because I have a physical copy. That usually doesn't come to pass, but I fool myself every time. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, in Toronto at this point, we actually, if you go to the library, they have automatic tellers that you don't actually have to show people the books you're taking out and they don't mm. have to scan it. You just have to put them on a plate. But I remember as a kid, I would get embarrassed by the books I would take and like show yeah. people and stuff like that. So that's a completely normal feeling. But also as working as a librarian... I don't care what people are taking out. I, I say fuck them. That's yeah, what I say. Yeah, fuck them. If they yeah. don't like what you're taking out, they're probably not going to say anything yeah. and they have no power over you. So anyway, just show it in their faces. It's in their library. Yeah. Oh, also growing up, libraries were also absolutely essential to my understanding of the history of film criticism. Mm, yes, uh, absolutely. Like Me so, too. So many of the important critics. That, Jonathan Rosenbaum, I found on a shelf randomly. Jonathan Rosenbaum, Pauline Kael, Stanley Kaufman, Jay Hoberman. These were all critics who their best work is not online. Line. Mm-hmm. So and their their books are not in print, so you have to go to the library to read them. So hopefully that helps you out next time you yeah. take out a movie that you feel that like you're a little bit awkward about. Chances are the librarian probably doesn't know what that movie is. Yeah, and they, and just know that we've got your back. Yeah, the important right. cinema club is there with you in spirit, <laughs> always. Thanks very much for that letter, Dan Bach. Our next letter is from Thomas Golden. He goes, "Hey guys." Just finished the episode about bad movies and was wondering if you guys ever heard of a film called Amanita Pestilence. It's a forgotten Canadian film that my friend needed to pay a Canadian film archive and lie to them about it being for research in order to get a chance to rent it. It's about a man who is obsessed with the state of his own lawn when it starts growing this fungus that drives him to do unspeakable things. It's one of the weirdest and most enjoyable film experiences I've ever had. I honestly don't know if it would count as a bad movie because of how invested you end up in seeing what happens to these mushrooms. If you haven't, I'd recommend finding a film archive to lie and watch it. I'd also recommend checking out the director's IMDb page. He's got credits ranging from The Twilight Zone to The Lassie TV Show. A perfect career arc. (laughs) Always a pleasure, guys. Tom. Now, this is a letter that I wouldn't usually read because it's a specific film recommendation Mm -hmm. and makes me go, Tom, are you the director of this movie? (laughs) But I actually did some research and this film is not available anywhere. Again, the title is Amanita Pestilence. And it was the first color Canadian film ever made, made in the 60s, was shot simultaneously in English and French. Wait, the first Canadian color film was in the 60s? No, the first feature-length Canadian color film, according to the IMDb trivia that I found. Wow. Uh, I don't know if that's 100% true, but if that's the case, that's crazy. And how is this movie not available? It would never got a VHS release, never a DVD release. You can only get it from, I checked, the Canadian like Library of Congress. You can take it out if you go. Okay, well, if anyone with some sway has... Uh... A copy of it, yeah. send it to us. Yeah. I would like to watch it. Or if, you know, uh, Pierce Handling is listening to this or anyone with power. Uh, Time for a retro screening. Yeah, do it. And this also shows an example of that, like, even if you think that you've heard or seen every movie ever, there's other movies for you to discover. Like, there's always stuff. There are lots of movies I haven't seen. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Thomas Golden, for that letter. That's definitely a movie I'm going to keep my eye out for. Our next letter is from loyal listener Peter Davies. He goes, Hi, guys. This is the second time emailing the show. 
I wanted to ask your opinion on political cinema. What do you think are some good political films? As someone who has become politically active in the last couple of years, I've been curious to find films which aren't afraid to deal with political issues in an overt way, excluding Michael Moore. Can or should cinema be used to educate or promote a specific ideology while still being entertaining? Or do you think it's best to leave ideology at the door? Uh, I think all cinema is inherently political. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but I think there is such a thing as cinema that is uh, didactic and boring. And boring. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's impossible to make a film without a political ideology, yeah. whether it be, uh, you know, you're Jean-Luc Godard and you're like, everything is capitalist cinema. Or it's just like your standard movie that uh, upholds the status quo or whatever. And I think that movies that you don't understand its overt political message probably have more of an impact because people absorb that and it becomes yeah. part of their everyday. But frankly, I think there aren't a lot of movies that are going to make a lot of visible change i think that's movies historically have been proven to be ineffective at yeah rallying immediate social change mm -hmm. um although certain movies have been very influential often for the bad like uh trying for the will trying for the will birth of a nation mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people have credited birth of a nation with reviving the ku klux klan yep. and you know a lot of lynchings were attributed to that film um, I'm trying to think of a movie that's changed things for the better, and I'm having trouble coming up with an idea. I mean, there's a lot of good politically charged film. Battle of Algiers sure. is a very good movie. The Great Dictator. Yeah. Um, and I just saw Battleship Potemkin again recently, and it's very good. Yeah, off the top of my head, I can't really... Bullworth. <laughs> <laughs> that really shows us that politicians shouldn't be trusted. Uh, this letter continues. He has a lot of questions. Okay. Recently, I've been experiencing some major blockage when it comes to my Blu-ray collection. I have Blu-rays I bought years ago, and still haven't watched because I never feel in the mood. I know the answer is just watch them, but how do you regain the motivation for something that's been gathering dust for a long time? There's other things I'd like to buy, but I feel like I should just watch what I own first before buying more. What do you think? I realize this is the most minor problem to have, but it is still annoying. I don't know what to say except you're not alone. Yeah, I have tons of... Listen, buying stuff makes a person feel better. Like, yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. Like... I'm going to get the American Horror Project, which has three low-budget films packed with special features. I'm going to discover all of them. Yeah, I haven't even watched all those movies. But you got though. a little bit of an endorphin rush when, yeah. you, when you bought it, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, this feels important. I'm going to experience all of this. Uh, well, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll get something and I won't watch it for, for months and months, but then, then the mood will strike. I remember going to people's houses and being infuriated as a child that I would see a VHS still in its packaging. And I was like, how can someone buy something and not watch it right away? I had the exact same feeling <laughs> as yeah. a kid. Yeah. And now look at us. We're just fat capitalists on our pile of material goods. Here's my advice to you. Don't buy things. Save your money. Buy a house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know the feeling will come in different ways just looking at your film and going I'm going to force myself to watch that you probably aren't going to enjoy it although I think what you can do is kind of say to yourself okay on Thursday I'm going to watch this movie and then you kind of work yourself you yeah. kind of get mentally adjusted to the idea and then you pop that Edgar G. Elmer film in and you're like ah this is great I'm always uh, in the mood for an Edgar G. Elmer film <laughs> also we asked what's the longest you've owned a DVD or Blu-ray before watching it Hmm. Uh, it's still going, I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah uh, my collection has a lot of movies. I'm looking there. Dra Ten years, easily. <laughs> Dracula 3 Legacy, the third part <laughs> of the DTV Dracula film. I actually put it on a few weekends ago and went, I don't want to watch this. Yeah. Another day, perhaps. Peter also asks, I was also wondering if the two of you had ever discussed writing a script together. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> and can I give a quick shout out to my, I don't respect Will's talent. <laughs> As a writer, yeah. as Larry Cohen said about William Lustig. <laughs> 
And can I give a quick shout out to my love, Angie, winner of your recent competition. Your love, Angie? <laughs> Wait, were, were the important cinema club a matchmaker here? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Oh. Uh, write us in, let us know, yeah. or tweet to us. Who tells me she never received her important cinema club certificate thingy, which I believe... We said that as a joke, didn't we? Yeah, we did. I'll write you one. Yeah, we can make one. It's just going to be us, like, writing on a sheet of paper. We will do it right after this podcast. I'm going to take a printer page. We're going to make you a certificate. And have either of you been watching the new Twin Peaks? And what do you think of it? I have. You've been watching it. Loving it. Loving it. I I will get to it. Keep up the great work, Peter. Well, thank you very much for the letter, Peter. Much appreciated. All right, we're breaking form here because we got another letter. Why not? Turn the podcast off if you're tired. Yeah. Dear Important Cinema Club, I love the podcast. You guys are great oh, listen to. Oh, shucks. Blah, blah, Stop blah. Stop reading the part where they praise us. Insert cliche fan letter content. <laughs> I like to say, don't stop. Just yeah. keep putting right. it. It makes, Will sometimes walks in and he's like, I don't want to do this anymore, Justin. And I wrestle the gun out of his hands. <laughs> and I'm like, Will, I got a good positive letter for you. And the letter continues. Let me just get down to my point. I just watched the masterpiece that is Dr. Strangelove by Stanley Kubrick. So I realized after recently going through all of his major films, I'd love to hear you guys talk about this man genius and see what you think of his movies. I'd also love to hear you guys discuss some of the conspiracy theories around Kubrick supposedly filming the fake moon landing and how he hid clues about it in The Shining. Love your take on Christopher Nolan. Thanks for the podcast. Jacob Chandler, a.k.a. Batman. Whoa, that's the reveal okay. right there. <laughs> you don't want to say that in your letter. <laughs> About doing Kubrick, uh, I don't really think so, because like, well, what would we say? No, I think we'll get to him at some point. Yeah. It's like, he's he's so done to death. Yeah. Also, he didn't fake the moon landing. Come on. <laughs> he did. No, no, there's no way. No. I feel myself wanting to say stuff about Kubrick that everyone listening has heard a thousand times yeah. before. Yeah. Uh, if we did him, I would probably do his minor films. It would be an Eyes Wide Shut, Killer's Kiss episode. Or I we believe. could do Fear and Desire and do first and last. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah uh, we're probably going to get uh, to him eventually when we're going to need those sweet clicks, <laughs> which is why we do stuff like Christopher Nolan. Yeah. But uh, thanks for writing a letter. Whew, just sweating all these letters. God damn. <laughs> what are we doing next week, Will? Robert Flaherty. Yeah. Uh, th- this will be a popular one. Uh, d- <laughs> director of Nanook of the North. You know what? I'm going to put documentaries in the title and then those clicks are just going to arrive. I, d- I only want good clicks. <laughs> you don't want bad clicks? Yeah. I only- Ev- Will, every click is a good click. No. We're going to get that Blur Hot Docs audience just clicking want to learn about the king of... I would never want to associate with the Blur Hot Docs audience. <laughs> Hello, is the Important Cinema Club coming live from the stage of the Blur <laughs> Hot Docs. They didn't invite us to Podfest or whatever the fuck that is. Oh, that's right. We did get invited. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> Can you imagine having to get up in front of like an audience of blue hairs and like... I, I... People who don't know what a podcast is. Yeah, and yeah. being like, we're going to talk about... Paul Morrissey and Andy Warhol. Actually, they would probably like an Andy Warhol episode. Yeah. Because, it would be like the end yeah. of Mr. Bean's holiday. Oh, well, we saw Warhol paintings when we visited the MoMA during our New York holiday. Hey, what did you visit when you took a New York holiday? Of course of course, I went to the MoMA. <laughs> yeah. And Robert Flaherty is the guy who made Nanook of the North. Hmm. He's the guy who directed a few other documentaries as well. But it's Nanook of the North. Not the first documentary, but the, the first movie to make people understand what a documentary is. And hmm. also... Not a documentary by today's standards. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. It was also prompted by the fact that I got a diary by the editor of another one of his films. And I decided, well, if I'm going to read this, I might as well get some worth out of it. So let's do a podcast episode about him. You excited, Will? 
Moderately. All right. I think well, it'll be feel that fury <laughs> pushing you to listen to next week. And until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Have you punched any Nazis lately? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I'll, I'll, later today, I'll, I'll get <laughs> yeah, around to you it. do. Yeah, because yeah. for people that are listening to this in the future, where the uh, Earth is a wasteland, nuclear radiated, we're in a political moment right now. Two big things this week: there was Charlottesville, and there was the guy who directed Kong Skull Island <laughs> getting angry about the Cinema Sins videos. <laughs> but Th- when, those were the two big. When events. you talked about it to me, you actually said like. What is this guy talking about when the shit's going on in Charlottesville? Well, honestly, yes. <laughs> really? I, I I feel I do feel that way a little bit. Mm. Did you see that the director of La La Land started a Twitter account just to talk about that stuff? Yeah. But how do you feel about that? I think he's well into. I think. It, I, <laughs> oh wow! I see the like the pain in your face. Like, well, I, I can't make fun of this as well. It, like he's a little. It's a little dorky. Yeah. But, but it's it's cute. You yeah. Know? That's right. I think it's I think it's nice. I think he's he's well meaning. Because you're pro punching Nazis, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, me too. Because how can you not be? Well, you know, you hear all these like dipshits talking about how well we shouldn't sink to their level, and you know, punching Nazis isn't going to change anything. But no, it, it like. A, it, it makes them afraid to go out in public. Yes. Uh, B, it makes them look stupid. And, Very stupid. And C, it makes us feel better. <laughs> that's right. So I think all Is that's Is it going to solve all world problems? No, no, it won't. But you could even see like all the people that were at that rally got all called out. Yeah. And like lost their jobs and their lives were destroyed. And now as it should be. And now they're all pissed off because they're like, oh well, just because I was at the the rally doesn't doesn't mean uh, oh so much for the tolerant left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Know. And the thing about Nazis, to tie it into a cinema podcast, listen, this isn't Michael and us here, <laughs> is that So so like what are some good kind of like Nazi exploitation, you know, Nazi villain movies? I mean, there's a lot of bad Nazi exploitation. The whole Ilsa She Wolf of the SS series. I just watched the Cutthroats recently by what's the name of the guy who Oh, I don't remember. He's a guy who made Garden of the Dead. Oscar nominated. He was Oscar nominated for best documentary short, I think, and then he spent the rest of his career making steadily worse exploitation movies and the cutthroats was one it was a nazi exploitation sex exploitation like men on a mission movie mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a men on a mission movie that's shot in like one room yeah like it and it's filled with sex it was one that uh so it was like six o'clock and i knew that i had to leave the house at 8 30 to go something go to something and i thought well this'll this'll do <laughs> and it did yeah it passed the time uh i mean i'm a huge fan of the macaroni combat films which are the very little talked about cousin of spaghetti westerns <laughs> which are these world war ii epics in air quotes that were shot in italy usually in like the late 60s early 70s and so there's a lot of them directed by umberto lenzi mm-hmm. who is a very prolific director that is very hit and miss he's best known i think for his italian cannibal films like make them die slowly mm-hmm. also known as cannibal ferox was him he's also known for his giallos mm-hmm. a lot of them that are not even really giallos but mm-hmm. more psychological thrillers like orgasmo and orgasmo yep he made no, a movie not, called... Not the Trey Parker film. Nope, it's not. It's a film called Orgasmo. Famous for uh, George Romero shooting some inserts for it huh. for its American release. <laughs> Just like dolls and stuff like that, mannequins. And so the Umberto Lenzi pictures are good. Enzo G. Castellari made a really good one called Eagles Over London. He also directed the most famous of macaroni combat films, Inglorious Bastards, the original, with Fred Williamson and Bo Svensson teaming up to just take down some Nazis, which is always fun to see on screen. Mm-hmm. 
And then you also have the weird bit of Nazi cinema, which is actual Nazi cinema, films that were made when Hitler was in power, like The Eternal Jew. Yeah, like Joseph Goebbels, you know, was under the belief, like he, Joseph Goebbels really admired people like Walt Disney, and he admired the, or was interested in the potential of film to kind of like influence public opinion. Which led to stuff like Triumph of the Will. Yeah, uh, but, you know, Triumph of the Will is one of the artier examples. Like, the Eternal Jew is a much more representative example. But there were also these blockbuster-type films they made in the uh, the Third Reich. Like, there was a Baron Munchausen film, and there was... I remember when I was in high school, I saw the Nazi Titanic film, Mm. which is just kind of like a standard melodrama, but it ends with a caption that says, and because of Britain's endless lust for for money, the Titanic sank. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also films like the long forgotten epic musical Girl of My Dream, which came out in 1944, Mm -hmm. which is just kind of a standard musical, which has the weird fact that it was made in World War II in Germany when like everybody was pure evil. Well, it's kind of interesting to look at like uh, not to compare modern day China to Nazi Germany, Mm. uh, but, you know, China definitely views its film industry the same way that Goebbels viewed his like like the the Chinese movies are definitely viewed as a propaganda Mm -hmm. vehicle. Uh, A movie like Kung Fu Yoga, for instance, was made to publicize the one road, one belt policy. And they just had a movie out now, The Founding of the Army. Like they they do all these big historical blockbusters. What was that one also that Jackie Chan starred in? It was 1911. Yeah. And even like trash, like Wolf Warrior 2 that we talked about last Mm -hmm. week is pure propaganda. That's like why it exists and why it was funded. But that one is tons of fun. Yeah. And you know, Nazis are bad. I agree. And on this week's episode of the Patreon, me and Will watched Mr. Bean, the ultimate disaster movie, and the should-be-a-classic-comedy film, Hell's a-Poppin'. For $5 a month, go to the Patreon, you'll get that episode, everything we've done up till then, and a new episode every week. Also, the contest that I said a few weeks ago about us watching all the Thumb movies is still on. If by next week we have 50 Patreon subscribers, and I believe we're at about 42, me and Will will do a Patreon episode about the Thumb movies. And as far as the contest for the three prizes I've talked about before, the names will be drawn this week and will be announced next week.